Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Have you ever been in one of those situations where a little child draws a picture that is clearly very important to you, to them, and then brings it to you and presents it for your approval and says, what do you think? And you look down and it's like indecipherable. (laughs) And they're looking up at you with these eager eyes as if to say, what you say next may determine my psychological health for the foreseeable future. (laughs) And you're like, I don't know if this is an apple or like a unicorn playing a saxophone. I can't tell. It's one of the two, you know. So what do you do? You say, oh, it's, it's great. It's wonderful. You are an artist. And it's such a good job. It's just, I love it. I love it. I wonder if sometimes this is how we feel about the Old Testament. Like, I hope this isn't irreverent, you know, but the first two-thirds of the Bible is the Old Testament and part of the Bible that's preparing us to Jesus and God. You know, he's like, I wrote this book. It's a gift for you. What do you think? And you're like, I'm going to read it a little bit. It's great, God. You are a writer. You should tell stories. It's awesome. Yes. In your mind, you're thinking, what the heck is going on here? Like, I can't tell, again, if this is an apple or uh, you fill in the blank, you know. Well, the good news is a couple of things. First of all, if you've ever felt like this, irreverent or not, you're not alone. Like, it's not just you. It's, it's not an uncommon experience to open up the pages of the Bible, the Old Testament, and to believe this is a book from God, and yet to find yourself like, what am I supposed to do with this? I have no idea how to make sense of this or what this may have to say to me, if anything at all, today, what is going on? Uh, the other part that's good news is there's more than meets the eye with the Old Testament. It really is. Like there's, there's truth beyond that moment where you find yourself perplexed by what you're trying to read. There's more there. There are a lot of great and wonderful things about the Old Testament, and none of them are more important than the fact that it shows us Jesus. It brings him before our minds. Now, usually not directly, usually not like in obvious ways, not right on the surface, but rather in the shadows And what we've been doing in this series is looking at Old Testament stories, some of which we may be familiar with, others of which may be totally new to us, and asking what's going on in these stories, and not just for their own sake, but like where in these things can we find Jesus? That's what we're doing in this Shadows series. So if you would, turn your Bibles to the book of Judges, or tune your devices, either way, Judges. That's what we're going to be looking at, Judges chapter 6. We're going to look at the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6. And as you're turning there, let me kind of set the context for you a little bit. This, is, these, th- this book of Judges tells stories about Israel during a time of transition. It's probably the best way to look at it. They've come out of uh, slavery. They've been liberated from bondage in the past. Like, that's where they came from. Liberated from bondage in Egypt. You know, we're glad to not be there. And they're moving toward this, like, full identity as an established people. Eventually, there'll be a monarchy with kings like David and Solomon and these other, you know, famous names in Israel's history. And the book of Judges occurs in the in-between zone in transition. And God basically says, during this time, I want you to not do what everybody else does around you and learn to be my people. And the key theme in this book is like, let me be your king. God says, let me be your king. I'm your king. I'm the only king you need. And I'll send you leaders to take care of specific problems as is, as is needed. But just trust me to be your king. And in the book of Judges, what we find out is that they don't trust him. 
They don't do what he says. There's this cycle that repeats itself throughout Judges where Israel disobeys God and then they find themselves in disaster and then they cry out for help and then God sends a deliverer and then everything's great for a while and then they disobey God and they find themselves in disaster and then they cry out for help and he sends a deliverer over and over and other and these deliverers are called judges, sort of just a word that means leaders and they over and over again repeat the same silly cycle. Why? Why'd they do that? You know, why do we? I think I can tell you why they did. I think you can look at, at the pages of this book and, and kind of discern what's going on here is they don't want God, they, just, they don't want to let God be their king. Like the, that's not enough for them. They, let, let's put it this way. They don't want to allow God to be the hero of their story. They just, it's just so slippery and vague and I can't see him. How does that work? That's the problem. And hang on to that idea because I think it's going to be pretty important for us if we're going to hear the story of Gideon properly. Not just sort of, you know, hey, look at Gideon, isn't he great? But properly. Because like much of the Old Testament, if we come to this looking for examples of moral behavior from these heroes of the faith, we're going to walk away disappointed. And that's because the point is not uh, look at this guy or look at this gal so much as it is look at this God, isn't he great? And the message of Judges as a whole, we're going to look at one story. The message of Judges as a whole is, if you worship God, then you're going to experience this blessing. But if you worship something other than God, something less than God instead, then you're going to find yourself defeated and enslaved every time. Which brings us to the story of Gideon. So turn over to Judges chapter 6. It's a long story. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Because really like Judges 6 through 9, all of those chapters are just one continuous narrative. Especially 6 through 8. And we're going to look in at some key spots. And for the rest of it all, read some of the text and kind of fill in in between. I really want us to get a sense of the event. So picture yourself on a plush carpet. It's story time. And we're just going to hear this thing. And then after we talk through it, we'll then say, okay, looking at this as a whole, what, 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 what does it give? What does it say? What do we learn? So picking up in chapter 6, verse 1, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. So same cycle. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves and mountains, mountains, mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. They're hiding from them. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys, even the donkeys, you know. So picture the scene. For seven years, Israel plants her crops. And then right about the time, you know, the, the dates, the figs are about to show, right about the time the grain is about to be ready, they come through and they just stampede all of this, just terrorize them over and over and over. Verse 5, they came up with their livestock and their tents uh, like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So Israel for seven years is being oppressed by these powerful peoples. And finally they say, enough, God, would you fix this? And then in response, what we read next is God sends them a prophet. He doesn't first send them a judge to lead and deliver them. He sends them a prophet because they need to know, like, you got yourself into this. So he sends them a prophet, and the prophet says, God's capable of delivering you just like he did in the past. You're the ones who are in this mess because you rejected his ways. And then after he sends a prophet, he sends an angel. We'll pick it up there, verse 11, uh, with the encounter between angel and our man Gideon. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite. Uh, well, that's a word, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. 
He's hiding. You don't thresh wheat in a wine press. You thresh it out in the open air. You kind of crash the, you push the thing together so that it separates the part that you want to eat from the rest, and then you actually throw it up in the air because the breeze will catch the chaff, the worthless stuff, and just take it away, and the good, heavier part will fall. Then you can take it and eat or store it in a bin or whatever you need to do. He's doing this in a wine press, which is this sort of double-layered bunker in the ground. He's hiding because he's afraid of them. That's the picture of what's going on here. Trying to make some dinner, but he's afraid of the big, bad Midianites. So uh, verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And I think he tried not to grin. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Why are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. So Gideon goes away and he prepares like an altar and a sacrifice and he comes and he sets it before this angel and says, here you go. And the angel reaches down and touches it and up in flames. Gideon's like, oh, this is really God, okay? So then Gideon makes his first move, and his first assignment is to go and knock down the, uh, the shrines, the idols in his backyard. There was one to a female goddess and one to a male god, and he's supposed to go and knock them down. So he goes and knocks them down, but he does it in the middle of the night. He's a little bit of a fraidy cat. He goes and does it while nobody else is watching. They're all asleep, and the next day, people wake up and say, who did this? Find us the person that did this. We're going to punish them. And then Gideon's daddy stands up and says, leave him alone. It was my boy. It's fine. So he kind of gets backed up by old Papa. Then we move in the store to the point where God's like, okay, it's time for this big battle. So rally the troops. So Gideon rallies the troops, blows the trumpets, gathers the people, and they're all together ready for battle. And then Gideon says, God, I'm a little worried about this. Uh, we have 32,000. They have 135. Like, I'm not sure. So how about a test? And so then what Gideon does is, still in the wine press, he's still kind of hiding out. He takes this piece of fleece. So picture like a, like a sweatshirt. And if you, if you leave a sweatshirt out on the grass and you wake up the next morning and there's dew on the grass, is there going to be dew on the sweatshirt? Like, yeah, it's going to be wet. So he says, I'm going to take this piece of fleece and I'm going to put it down here. And then tomorrow morning, how about you make the fleece wet but the ground dry? And God's like, fine, whatever. So wakes up the next morning, done. And then Gideon's like, okay, that was awesome, but like maybe one more thing. Let's flip it now. And instead, what was dry, make it wet. What was wet, can you make it dry? Can you do that? And God's like, whatever, fine. So next morning he wakes up and yes, he did it again. So finally Gideon's like, all right, let's do this. So it's time for war. And let's pick it up now in what is my favorite part of the story, chapter seven, uh, verses one and following. Early in the morning, Jerub Baal, that's another name for Gideon. And all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. 
Take them down to the water and I'll thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. And there the Lord told them, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. So the idea is the two different ways of drinking. Some of them kneeled down on a knee and then brought the water up to them, which is a smarter move because you can still see what's going on around you. You're not as vulnerable. Others, like, I'm not going to lay down on the ground, but like lay down on the ground and just cupped water right up to their faces. They're totally vulnerable. 9,700 of them did it the smart way. 300 did it the silly way. Verse 6, 300 of them drank from the cupped hands like, like, like lapping dogs, and all the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Okay. 300 people. Gideon, at this point in the story, is, well, he's kind of always afraid, still here. And so he needs another sign. So once again, God says, okay, take somebody, go down in the enemy camps. They go down in the enemy camps and they're listening in and they hear this uh, young soldier on the other side talking about how he had a dream that Gideon is going to defeat them. So finally, Gideon is like, okay, I believe you, God, let's do this. And so they take their 300 troops and they separate them into three groups and they've got these jars with a flaming torch in it and trumpets. And what they do is they surround the camp and on Gideon's cue, they smash the jars, set the flames on fire, blow the trumpets and yell out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And this so terrifies the Midianites in the camp down below, it's the middle of the night, so terrifies them that they just start slashing swords at each other, turning on one another, and eventually they run away and Israel chases them and is victorious. It would be great if the story ends there, but the story doesn't end there. After victory, Gideon goes on a vengeance rampage and basically takes out anybody who's ever done anything wrong to him. God doesn't tell him to do this, he does it on his own. And then I want us to, it's kind of anticlimactic, but I want us to catch what happens at the end of Gideon's life. Chapter 8, starting in verse 22. This is after we've defeated the enemy, we've taken care of all those who did Gideon wrong, and now we come to the conclusion. Verse 22, the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son will rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Is that the right answer? Yes, great. And he said, I do have one request. Uh Uh-oh. That each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camel's necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Verse 28. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace 40 years. Jerubbaal, remember that's Gideon, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals, 
They set up Baal Barit as their God and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in spite of all the good things he had done for them. So at the end of the story, Gideon says, no, 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 I'm not going to be a king. But would you give me a little bit of gold and I'm gonna go get myself a lot of wives and I'm gonna name one of them Abimelech. Do you wanna know what the name Abimelech means in the original language? Son of the king. The story does not end well. Gideon does not seem to have learned the lesson he claims to have learned. Hear me, there is a time to talk about what Gideon did right. He is, in certain respects, a man of faith, and I don't want to downplay that too much, but that is not the dominant theme that emerges from the pages of this story. He began in fear and ended in failure. And if that's all this has to say to us, go be like Gideon, then I'd kind of rather read something else. I don't find that to be too encouraging of a message. If the theme of this story is be like Gideon, I think I'm out. But if it's not, then what is it? Well, in a word, grace. Or if you want it in seven words, let me put it like this. God treats us better than we deserve. That's good news for me. God treats us better than we deserve. That is what I think you see consistently throughout this story. Let me just point out three ways we see this in God's interaction with Gideon and the Israelites. First of all, God responded to Israel's childish cries. You know, up top of the story, whenever, you know, things are going wrong and so they cry out to the Lord, you might be tempted to think that that's them saying, we're sorry, God, we repent, we, we should not have worshipped them. That's not what that is. That's not what that is. Otherwise, God would have sent a prophet to scold them. No. You know what that is? That's not, I'm sorry, I was wrong, you were right, I want to make things better. That's... I hurt, and I don't want to hurt anymore. Can you fix this, please? That's what they were saying. And this is the fourth time they've made the same mistake. Now, I don't know about you, but if some point, at some point, if people keep asking me for advice but not doing what I say, I'm just going to kind of wash my hands of the situation and say, I've done what I can, I'm moving on. So what did God do? Did he say, I've done what I can, I'm moving on? Did he say, call me back when you mean it? No, he responded. He doesn't just let them off the hook, mind you. He does clarify for them. Don't forget why you're in this mess. You chose this by rejecting me. But even in getting on to them, he's giving them an opportunity to truly repent and so be saved. He sends them a prophet, then an angel, then a judge. He stoops down in grace before they even acknowledge that they need it. Yeah, yeah, God responded to Israel's childish cries. Second thing we see is that God renamed Gideon before he did anything to deserve it. It's almost funny. It's almost humorous. Here you have Gideon. He's, he's threshing wheat in a wine press, hiding from the big bad Midianites, afraid of what goes on. And then God sends an angel who begins the conversation with, uh, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I think Gideon thinks he's being made fun of because he responds by saying, oh yeah, if God's with us, then how come God's not taking care of us? You can call me what you want, but God's not doing a much better job than me. He's not taking care of this mess. Now, now let, me, let me ask you, would Gideon eventually prove to be a mighty warrior? Yeah. He led 300 men into battle against 135,000. That's impressive. He would eventually prove to be a mighty warrior. But was he yet at this point in the story a mighty warrior? No, of course not. So what's going on here? Well, what's going on is that God gives Gideon a new name long before he does anything to earn it. God treats him better than he deserves. And the third one is the one I think most comes out of this story. 
God revealed his power through weakness. Not strength, weakness. Might be the main theme of the whole thing. Think about the different ways that Gideon demonstrates weakness. And I don't mean like being bad. I don't mean sin. I don't mean he's doing wrong. I mean he's just showing himself to be weak. First of all, we started with him hiding, threshing in a wine press. Secondly, when the angel comes, he kind of, he kind of talks back a little bit and doubts that God is actually going to do what he says. Then when he realizes that he's supposed to be the leader, he says, well, I'm nobody. He, he, he talks about his own uh, unimpressive pedigree. My clan is the weakest in my tribe, and I'm the youngest in my family. I'm nobody. Fourth thing is he asks for a sign with the whole sacrifice and the altar thing. Fifth thing is when he finally does something, tear down the idols, he does it at night so that nobody will see. Sixth thing is uh, once this gets found out, his own father has to come to his defense because he won't stand up and say, I did this. What are you going to say about it? God told me to. Number seven, he demands another sign twice with the whole fleece on the dew type thing. Number eight, because he was afraid he needed yet another sign, the dream of the enemy soldier. Number nine, he goes on this unnecessary vengeance streak after he finally has power. So once he gets power, he abuses it. And number 10, even though he says he doesn't want to be a king, he certainly acts like one and he names his son, son of the king. I mean, that is 10 manifestations of weakness. That's 10 signs of weakness. I told you, Gideon makes a poor hero. Now, if your name is Gideon, that's awesome because of God in the story. So it's cool don't want you to go home going, Mom, Dad, why'd you do this to me? No, like, it's a cool name because of what the story represents. But the point is not, isn't Gideon so awesome? This is not by accident. Come back to my favorite part of the story, the most ridiculous part, where God whittles down Gideon's army into impossible odds. It would have been hard enough to take 32,000 men into battle against 135,000, but one to four odds is doable. Like at that point, he's probably like, okay, I think with God on our side, we can do this. And then God says, send away anyone who's afraid. 22,000, gone. Now it's one to 13. Is that really enough? Gideon asks. asks. And God is like, yeah, you're right, that's way too many. <laughs> so we send home 9,700 more. And it seems like the ones that go are better equipped for battle. Now it's one to 450. Even Leonidas couldn't take these odds. It's crazy and it's on purpose. Why? He told them in chapter 7, verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. It's almost like they're so thick-headed that God has to work through weakness so they don't forget that all genuine success comes from his brilliance, his power, his mighty hand. Yeah, Gideon and Israel were given a chance to learn a necessary lesson. They didn't get it but maybe we still can. Here it is. Let God be the hero of your story, which means you must let grace be the theme. Let me just let that sink in for a minute. Let God be the hero of your story, which means let grace be the theme. Now this on its own would probably be enough, but what we've said in this series is we're not just going to look at these stories on their own. We've got to find Jesus here. So where is Jesus in the Gideon story? Well, he's kind of like everywhere in a certain sense. It is true that Jesus is a true and better Gideon. 
It is true that there are parallels between them. Like Gideon, Jesus, though from humble circumstances, arose and overcame impossible odds in order to secure liberty for God's people. There's no doubt a parallel between Gideon and Jesus. But I don't think Gideon is the main place we see Jesus in our story. Jesus is not primarily hiding in Gideon's shadow. He's in God's. Take a look at this. First of all, Jesus responds to our childish cries. Does he not? I mean, how many of us came to church or came to God to get some personal need met? Maybe we had a problem in our life and we wanted help to fix it. Maybe it was an addiction. Maybe it was a finances thing. Maybe it was confusion and we wanted some sort of clarity. Maybe there was a person in our life who we wanted to make happy. Maybe we were pursuing a guy or a girl, or maybe we were trying to keep a marriage together, or maybe we just wanted our kids to turn out okay. For any number of reasons, we come to Jesus so that he'll fix what's going wrong in our lives. It's sort of like when he was walking on the earth. People will come up to him, hey, can you heal my kid? Can you heal my spouse? Can you heal me? Can you sort of put me back together again? I need something. Can you take care of it? And over time, Jesus would, would purify their motives. But at first, what he doesn't say is, no, please leave. Get out of my face. I want nothing to do with you. He doesn't slam the door in our face. He opens it up and says, you know what? Come in. Let's talk. And then as you walk in and as you talk, you realize this funny thing, that you thought you were coming to find Jesus, but you discovered that he was looking for you all along. You didn't realize it because he knew better than to come face to face and confront you. You'd have walked away. So he wooed and he waited. And when you came in, when you moved in, selfish as it may have been, he welcomed you and said, let's talk. Let's talk. Jesus, he does indeed respond to our childish cries. Secondly, Jesus renames us before we do anything to deserve it. One time Jesus met this guy, Simon, and he said, "Uh, your name is Simon, but from now on you'll be called Peter which means rock. And if you don't know his story, let me just give you the bird's eye view. He's not a rock. He's like, when you hear his story, the last thing you think is steady and immovable. Most of the time when he opens his mouth, he makes a fool of himself. It would make more sense to me if Jesus said, you've been called Simon, but from this day forward, you will be called Noodle. (laughs) Something like that, you know? Like something not strong and impressive, but he calls him rock. So what about you? You've been called perfectionist, but your new name is Grace. You used to be called drunk, but now you're going to be known as redeemed. Your name was selfish ambition, but now it's faithful mechanic, faithful lawyer, faithful teacher. Your name was lazy, but now it's kingdom worker. They call you failure. He calls you a leader. They call you lost and lonely. He calls you son or daughter. And the point is not just that you get a new name. You already knew that. The point is that you got the new name before you did anything to deserve it. He gives you the new name when he first meets you. Jesus renames us before, before Before we win, he does not wait until we win to call us by our new name. He starts with it. And number three, again, this is the main thing. If you get this, I can sleep tonight. Jesus reveals his power through our weakness. Our weakness. Let's not forget that we live in a world that in every way trains us to value self-reliance above most things. You know? Like, you want grace to be the theme of my story? Oh, no, 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 no. I'd like for the theme of my story to be strength. I'd like for the theme of my story to be power. I'd like for the theme of my story to be on my own. I find it interesting that both Whitney Houston and Miley Cyrus have songs called On My Own. I'm not suggesting that these are necessarily thought leaders, but I do think that in certain ways, they reflect the values of our culture. You got two generations covered there, On My Own. And if I told you, I'm going to do this one on my own, you probably wouldn't reprimand me. You'd probably commend me. 
And there's a time for that. I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't ever take responsibility for things, but as like the theme of our life overall, I'm gonna do it all on my own, kind of sounds like you wanna be the hero of your story. And do you know what I think God wants to say to us, at least some of us? Gently, sure, but firmly, I think God wants to say to us, this story's not big enough for two heroes. It's either you or it's me. So do you ever wonder why God might be telling you no when you ask him for things? Sometimes it could be that you're asking him for things so that you can avoid your weakness. (laughs) Nobody wants to be needy. But the point is, you do need him. Do need him. And he won't let you forget that, not because he's codependent and wants to make sure that you stay weak, but because the moment that you or I think we can do it on our own, we're going to go Gideon on everybody and leave things worse than we found them. So maybe God wants you to stop running from your pain and to let him start working through it. Maybe he wants you to stop hiding the darker parts of your story and rather to tell them so that he can bring healing to you and others through it. Maybe in your life what he's doing right now is he's whittling down the odds from 32,000 to 10,000 to 300 so that when victory does come, you'll look up and say, that was all you. That was all you. Stop trying to do it on your own. Stop trying to do it on your own power. Stop trying to do it on your own wisdom, on your own strength. Stop trying to convince yourself and everybody else around you that you have it all together. Let God be the hero of your story. Let grace be the theme. I want to leave you with one final image. Have you ever tried to hug a person who was just totally stiff? Maybe it was uh, friends. Maybe it was a sibling, spouse, child. Just stiff, and like you can't, it's like hugging a table. It's like I'm gonna be better, I'm gonna have better odds hugging this thing, you know? It just can't, like, let me love you, but you can't get in, you know? On the other hand, have you ever, have you ever caught someone in an embrace because they were collapsing in tears? You don't meet a whole lot of resistance in those moments. And here's what I think we need to get from this the longer you hide from your weakness, the further you distance yourself from his love. So instead, embrace weakness so that you can receive grace. My sense coming in today has been in every service that there are some people in the room who are in a Gideon-type moment. Is God calling you to tasks beyond your abilities? Wonderful. Let God be the hero of your story. Does it seem like the odds are against you? Awesome. Let grace be the theme. When you look at your life, does it feel like God is stripping away everything that you think you need to succeed? Is God or is life forcing you to work from weakness? Fantastic. Remember Gideon, embrace weakness so that your life can be a portrait of grace so that the rest of us can look at you and remember to worship God. Father God, we thank you for this moment and this story. There's times when we find Gideon annoying because he looks a lot like a mirror. So help us to embrace our weakness so that we can receive your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.